tangata takahi manuhiri he marae puehu. A person who mistreats his guest has a dusty marae. E ngā mana e ngā reo, he mihi tēnei ki a koutou katoa e are taringa mai ana ki tēnei hōtaka a te ahikā. I'm Maraia Rakraku. And I'm Justine Murray and this is Te Ahikā on Radio New Zealand National. Coming up this week... When you're just 22 years old, how do you imagine what the future will hold? For some, it's graduating from university. For others, it's embarking on your OE. For Mara Mapala, who was that age in 1993, something happened to her that changed her life forever. Went to my family marae and my uncle had passed away and it was a tangi on. And on the last night, right next door to the marae is a nightclub and a band of Africans were playing. And this was in 1993. And we all went across to watch after been working in the Farikai all week and let our hair down. And I met a man called Peter Moai, who was playing the drums at the time. And first time I'd ever been picked up in a bar. <laughs> and was 22. 22 years old and contracted HIV from him. Marama Pala coming up soon. This year saw the resurgence of a song that was made famous in the mid-80s. Pātea Māori Club's Waiata Poi E enjoyed chart success again, almost 30 years after it first topped the charts, thanks to its use in the soundtrack in the movie Boy. So the song was written by Noi Pufairangi Ngāti Parau, mm-hmm. but it's identifiably recognised as being Pātea Māori Club. She, she wrote it for... Now, when the party of Māori, because when the work's finished, that's where they went, over to Ngāti Parau, and that's when her and Dal sat down and did the song. She wrote it, and he put the music to it, and she wrote it especially for Pātea. So that's where it's probably why it's identified for Pātea. Mm. Do you ever get sick of it? Mm, no, not really. The, the, the tune, it's it just when you hear the tune, it makes you, your ear yeah, yeah, it makes your toe tap. More from the Pātea Māori Club, including its most famous waiata, coming up on Te Ahikā. Now we're turning from the world of music to the world of fashion and the launch of the Māori-influenced designs that will feature on merchandise at Rugby World Cup 2011. The was transformed into a catwalk where the models wore clothing by the six designers. Head of programming at Māori Television, Carol Hirschfeld, was the MC. Our next designer up today is Leon Kipper. Leon is of Tainui and Napui descent, and he has two designs in the collection. The first of these is called Oma. This design is a stylized profile of a running man, a freeze frame of a rugby player in mid-flight. This image highlights the strength, agility, focus, and determination required to be a rugby player. Leon is a member of Nga Aho and currently works as an industrial designer in Auckland. Leon's second design is called Tanifa. It pays homage to our ancestors. Homage to those rugby greats that have passed on and the strength that they have given to the next generations. The serpentine form 
refers to the eel, a creature well known for being strong and slippery, not to mention a fighter to the end. These qualities are also strong traits of the open style running game that Māori rugby is famous for. Ladies and gentlemen, the very talented Leon Kipper. Kia ora, Leon. Kia ora. Uh, tell me about where you were born raised. Um, I was born in Auckland um, and brought up there as well as in Taipa, far north. My iwi is um, Tainui and Ngapui. Yeah. Leon, you are one of the successful designers behind uh, some of the well, the logos, designs we're going to see next year. Can you tell me about it, please? Our, uh, our ropu, uh, there's uh, five of us, uh, six designers, sorry, and um, we were given a word each, and uh, mine was wehiwana. I was to make some images that kind of imbued the, that, that idea, which is the raw and powerful energy of mankind, so... And uh, my images, uh, one's of a running man, I call Uma, and the other one is um, called Tanifa and is um, symbolic of um, a strength that is drawn from our ancestors. So, yes, to use on the field, you know. So, so if you could describe what it is, it's basically, it looks like, a, like I'm, I'm looking at your T-shirt that you're wearing, Leon, because you've got the design in your T-shirt, Rugby World Cup 2011. It's like... Two or like a Māori warrior mm. uh, holding a football, mm. sort of in that running kind of pose. Yep, that's correct. Yeah, it's um, it's a man, you know, uh, in full flight running, and I think that was like um, the best way to kind of um, literally capture an image that could um, suggest that raw running power and ready to do something fancy, you know, like Benji Marshall or, you know, or, um, you know, uh, what's his name, Jose Gere or something like that. Oh, so, Jose Gere is another yeah, man. Yeah. Was it exciting to see your, 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 what you've created on the models um, that yeah. we've had this afternoon? That's, that was good, eh, because I hadn't, hadn't seen it up until today, like everyone else, so... It was good to actually see it in the flesh, put it on, and it looked good, and everyone else received it well too. So, yeah. No, I mean, potentially, awesome. Leon, this can op- this is going to open the big wide, literally the big wide world to mm. what you've created. Yeah. Tourists, people that are coming to the Rugby World Cup to buy the merchandise, yeah. both online. I mean, do you see this as a million dollar opportunity? Well, hopefully for me, it'll be a choice, <laughs> but. Uh, I'm really grateful of, for the opportunity and meeting a lot of cool people in the process, artists, um, rugby players and stuff like that too. And, and the whole process has been really great. We bring it back to um, Ngāti Toa, um, where the haka is from, Kamate is, is from. So that was good to learn about that more in depth and, um, and come away from this whole thing feeling, you know, like it's been done properly. Ladies and gentlemen, please... Welcome our second Wahini tour for today. It is Tracy Takyo. Now, my notes tell me that Tracy is shy, which I find this unusual. I'm a good friend of Tracy, so it, it's unusual to hear her described as shy, but she is staying in the audience today. But to model Tracy's lovely designs, we've called in three wonderful women. Please welcome them. Kuriana is modelling one of three designs by Tracy that are included in the collection. All of Tracy's designs are inspired by Wairua, the spirit of life. Tracy has used a series of koru and spirals joined in a free-flowing movement. 
to shape these symbols in three images. The Aotearoa font design is shown here on the T-shirt modelled by Huriana. The second image, which uses the koru and spirals, is the map of New Zealand, modelled here by our other two ladies. Now the third image of traces can be seen in the booklet that is on your seats as you came in. This image is another representation of the Rugby World Cup New Zealand script. Tracy is a full-time artist based in Auckland. Her talents include painting, poetry, sculpture, photography and video, video art. Tracy, again, can you please stand and take our warm appreciation of your fantastic design and talent. Tracy Tafio, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Tracy Tafiao. Uh, Tracy, where, where, are you, where are you from? What's your iwi? Ngai te rangi, tuwhare toa and whakatoa here. Now Tracy, um, can we call it all about the design that you had modelled today, please? My theme word was wairua. Wairua. Yeah. So um, my, my design, well my, uh, my own art is based on this free flow form of Māori design. And um, I had to use it in context of Rugby World Cup, which was a little bit... Yeah. Difficult. What happened was we would put things forward and they would keep coming back because it had to, you know, fit into a certain. So in the end, we said, well, "Well, what would you like? What would you like me to do?" And then I can work myself into that, and and that's what ended up happening. And I did, you know, the map of New Zealand and the map of New Zealand. But in, within the map of New Zealand were all these little intricate koru designs. Yes, eh? they're just to, they're just representing the spirit of the unseen good in 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 the Maori world and. Just the idea of the bigger picture and things beyond us and all of those wonderful things that Wairua incorporates. And also the name Aotearoa. Aotearoa, In yeah. lowercase. Yes. yes. Lower, well, we, you know, we tried a different lots and it's just depending on what they chose. So there was like a lot, a lot of designs that we did and then it got narrowed down to what would, you know, fit with the Rugby World Cup design aesthetic. You're a bit of a poet, writer. <laughs> you're a... You're a Quite an impressive CV I was reading on the... Uh... It always sounds good on the CV. <laughs> You're Auckland-based? Yes. How uh, long have you been designing, uh, Tracy? Well, I'm not really a designer. Like, the other guys are actually designers, but I'm, a, I'm an artist, a painter, and a writer, so this was a difficult sort of transition for me to fit inside a design mould. So you went outside your comfort zone, really? A little eh? bit, so that was kind of good for me, I guess. Yeah. Are you looking forward to the to the, the, the mass production of your um, Wairua logo and designs on the T-shirts and hoodies about to flood Aotearoa stores? Well, I'm just excited for the, for the Māori aspect of us. That's just part of the bigger, you know, Rugby World Cup concept and that when you're in Aotearoa, you know you're in Aotearoa you know, doing your rugby thing, whatever that is. Um, and, yeah, just for that, I'm happy. I'm so proud that we're involved in that way. Tracy Tafio, kia ora. Thank you. I'm now going to ask Wiramu to stand. And I would like to introduce Wiramu Barrenball. We have two of wonderful, uh, of Wiramu's wonderful designs. And here they come. Wiramu has indeed two designs in the collection. The one that is being modelled today is Tumatoenga, representing the Māori war god. Wiramu's other design is called Mangopari. The Mangopari represents the hammerhead shark, the core inspiration for the Rugby World Cup 
2011 tournament, Look and Feel, mentioned by Kit McConnell earlier in his speech. The design symbolizes strength and intelligence. Incorporated in the design are a stylized fern and aspects of moko, Maori tattoo. Wiramu. Again, can we please get you to stand? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Wiramu Barry Ball. Justin Murray here with uh, Wiramu Barry Ball. Um, Wiramu, um, of course, shouldn't be a stranger to everybody out there. Budding fashion designer, artist, graphic design. Kia ora. Kia ora. So, Wiramu, um, tell me about your the designs that you created for this for Rugby World Cup next year. Uh, well, my two that, that were selected were um, my Mangopari design and uh, two Matauinga design. So I was pretty much given the word of tour. So when you say you were given the word tour, you were actually assigned? Pretty much, yeah. Anei te kupu tour, me haere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, and that was sort of an uh, initiative that was um, brought on by the designers. Us, you know, we the designers ourselves, so yeah. Now the image, I mean, when I saw it for the when I saw it just in the Farinui mm. before, I mean, to me because I've seen a lot of your stuff, it, it's very much a Wiremu variable design. Do you think? Yep. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's got that kind of, uh, shall we say, signature designs. Um, yeah, definitely, it's got my signature mark in there. Um, obviously, it, it, it needed to be appropriate for the the, the, the take that we were being put in charge of, you know, um, Mangopare for obvious reasons, you know, strength, agility, intelligence, all things needed to, that you need to sort of um, have within you to play the game of rugby, so, you know, so you sort of wrangle it to sort of mould into the, the kaupapa, which was rugby, obviously to Matonga, well, again, sort of self-explanatory, it's quite, I, I mean, God of War. I, I think I was quite lucky, eh, because... Yeah, Mine was pretty that easy. Kupu, to, what, yeah, yeah. That kupu would have so it's, suited it's your graphics. Of, it just goes hand in hand with the, with rugby. I mean, it's pretty much war out there, so you sort of have to validate that kupu. That, that, that word, kupu, yeah. You know, and, and the designs, you know. I mean, aroha. You know, there was a bit of discussion over, oh, is that in the game of rugby? And then once it, you know, it was sort of discussed. Oh yeah, it's hard out in the in, in, yeah. in the game of rugby. But with with my word, it was just bam. Yep. <laughs> Bit of a poo kind of a <laughs> squiggly over here. We're in there. <laughs> you know, the two Matonga graphic, I purposely used a, a northern style. Oh. You know, to. Um, What's a northern style? Well, the bow shaped head. Um, and, and that sort of, um, you know, pays homage to my um, connection with Te Rarawa. Yep. Um, because I'm here, down yep. here anyway, so, yeah, yeah. you know, I always try and find ways to. Um, you know, acknowledge all my um, ancestral sort of, um, you know, lines and connections and, and mm. well, Te Ati was, you know, it's, it's here as well, so, yeah. I mean, I'd like to say it was real intense and uh, uh, cool, but, uh, yeah, it was just day at the office, eh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, because, cause, um, you know, what I mean, with all the, the, the accolades, you've slowly, uh, the accolades and the awards and the recognition that you've gotten over the best part of... Oh, well, over the last several years, I mean, how special is this particular um, design, though? Because at the end of the day, you know, we're going to have hundreds and thousands of people visiting our shores in Aotearoa, and they're going to see Tumatawinga and Mangopare wearing the T-shirts, the tourists. Yep, for sure. Um, I think for Māori Dim itself, 
to be, um, you know, put in, put on the stage and, and to be represented by, I guess, designs that that come from the people of the land, um, because we all know that it's it's being exploited anyway by by people other than than ourselves. And um, I guess this is a good chance for us to say, no, we're the you know we're the guardians of this this art form and, and these are our designs and it's authentic for sure, awesome. But as far as personally. It, it, it's it, it's Another good, day but, in the yeah, it is. I mean, to be honest, I, I love designing for my people. Eh? So, do you, you like know? these things? Do you like the whole sh- really. showing on display no. and models wearing it? And oh, I don't mind models wearing it. I I definitely won't and be up there straight. People, catwalk. you know, Carol Hirschfeld mentioning your name twice. Clap, yeah. clap, clap. I mean, yeah, that sounds I mean, cool. Do you like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, to hear an iconic voice like that, yeah, that was a bit of a buzz, eh? And even to see you up, you know, in person. And, I suppose, um, yeah. It's, I mean, it's all cool. It's all cool, but isn't it great to have it at a marae? Oh, yeah. Hey. That's the one thing that I thought, yeah, you know, awesome. It, to me, that it's gone. They've gone about it the right way. Um, whatever happens after this, well, it doesn't matter because it's been set down properly, in, in, in my um, eyes anyway. And um, you know, so I, I think the the path has been laid down good and proper. Yeah, for sure. Kia ora. three of the designers who created Māori-inspired images that will brand next year's Rugby World Cup. You heard from Leon Kipper, Tracy Tafiao and Wiedemi Barrybull. This is Te Khan Radio New Zealand National. I'm Maraia Rakuraku. And I'm Justine Murray. E teiwi, kia mau mai te rongo. You're 22, your life is ahead of you and then something happens that completely throws you off track. That's how it was for Marama Pala in 1993. Since then, she's been able to turn what seemed like a death sentence at the time into something positive. Now, I'm sitting in what uh, the headquarters of the Māori Indigenous and South Pacific HIV AIDS Foundation, Ina. I'm surrounded by a desk, two computer screens, a drum kit, <laughs> and what seems to be the paraphernalia of a young family, actually. I'm looking at a baby seat. You know, madam, this is not what most people would associate with an uh, with an organisation, eh? No. <laughs> it's um, a mixture of everything. And that's because you run this from your own home. For now, yes. In Tito. Yes. Now, you're wahine living with HIV. Yes, I am. Uh, would, you, would you like to share your story about how it is that you first became HIV positive? Okay, sure. Um, I was 22 years old and I went to my family marae and my uncle had passed away and it was a tangiwa. And on the last night, right next door to the marae is a nightclub and a band of Africans were playing and this was in 1993. And we all went across to watch after being working in the Farikai all week and let our hair down, and I met a man called Peter Moai, who was playing the drums at the time, and first time I'd ever been picked up in a bar, mm-hmm. and was 22. 22 years old, and contracted HIV from him. So, one night stand? Yes. You know, most How people. Did I find out? Well, most people, eh, madam, they're like one night stands, condoms. Yeah, <laughs> um, I actually had a bag of condoms with me, and I asked him to use one. Um, he gave me this big long spiel how he didn't need one and that they hurt, and showed me a picture of his daughter and said 
he's perfectly fine and there's nothing to worry about. So I was, was pretty gullible and trusted that. And my knowledge of HIV at the time, I thought you looked like Tom Hanks in the movie Philadelphia when he had HIV. That's right. So um, in that movie, he ends up getting really, really thin. Yes, and having hucky hucky, yeah, going bald and all the rest of it. And when I looked at this young man, he looked very healthy and lots of flesh on him, didn't look unwell at all and was very fit and ate very well. He was... The total opposite. That's how much I knew about HIV. I didn't know you could live with it and look like everybody else. So you had a one-night stand. Yes. And did you go and go get the morning after pill? I mean, how is it that you found learned that you were HIV? Chronologically, about two weeks later, I got very sick and I was an unexplained illness and I went to my doctor what sort of sick, Marama? I had like a flu and a kind of diarrhoea, tummy bug type thing where I couldn't keep any food down and I was very weak, very much, a lot of pain in my body and my legs. And was it anything you had experienced before? No, completely different from anything I'd ever had happen in my life. And I went to the doctor and I got them to test me for everything. And the doctor at the time, she was quite an on-to-it doctor, and she said to me, um, have you done anything different lately? And I said, well, what do you mean different? And, and I said, well, I met a guy from Africa, and she went, right, HIV test. But at that time, when you have an HIV test that early, it didn't show up because they were testing for something that... Um, is an antibody, and I hadn't developed the antibodies yet. So by early, we're talking two, two weeks, weeks after yeah. you had contracted the contracted virus. Contracted it. And the, the the virus was rushing through my body. That's why I was sick. So I was actually had complete control of my body, and my immune system was trying to build the antibodies to fight it down. And so the test that was taken at the time came back negative. Um, that's key because later on... Um, on a few weeks later, about four weeks later, so this is six weeks after it had happened, he came back to my hometown and um, tried to see me again. And something, So he tried to hook up. Yep. And just something in my puku or my wider or something just said, don't go there, and I didn't. And then about two weeks later after that, um, my cousin came screeching round in his Holden HQ to my house with this newspaper, um, Sunday newspaper, with a big picture of his face in the middle of the front page saying, face of fear, anyone who's had contact with this man, please ring this phone number. And I just knew instantly, I just knew that that sickness that I'd had was... Due to having unprotected sex with this guy, with Peter Moy. Yeah, and I knew straight away there was no way around it. And I, my knees gave out. I I wanted my mum, and I couldn't think straight. Thought I was going to die with the first cold that came along. Um, went it, it, back then. It took two weeks to get a test done. Um, How long does it take now? You can find out in twenty minutes now. Yeah, there's a rapid testing, they call it, and they can do it just pricking your finger and mixing it up in a few little bottles of chemicals and you'll either, you can get a test that shows that you might need another test. It doesn't mean it's positive, but it just means you need further testing and, yeah, it's a lot quicker. 
anyway, I, I um, found out through the newspaper, we rang the phone number, and I talked to a, a detective that was in charge of the case, and he asked me, this is before I found out I was positive, he asked me, if you are positive, and we hope you're not, um, would you help us stop him from infecting others? And at the time, I was 22 years old, I had no idea of the political implications mm. of that or the future ramifications of that. Um, and all I was feeling at the time was this anger of, you know, how could someone do that to me? And yes, I'll help stop him do it, doing it to others. You know, that was that was the instant sort of feeling um, at the time because it was happened at the marae. So close to the marae and everyone that was there knew that it happened. I had no control over people knowing. What do you mean it happened? Oh, because you'd got together with him at the marae. Yeah, and everyone right, saw the so, paper. And it's obvious. Yeah. It's obvious because it's like, yeah, that's a muso that Marama hooked up with. Yeah, and it went round like wildfire around my whole whanau and hapu. They all knew. And so I had no control over who knew what. And that was really hard. And I suppose when I actually got the positive test, the hardest thing was, first I was told I had about 10 years to live, and if I was lucky. And the second thing I was told is um, that I couldn't have children and that the risk of passing the virus on to children would be too high. Now, that was in 1993, Mm -hmm. so that's a good 18 years later. Yeah. And you have two children. I have two negative children, yes. So miracles of science and and technology and all the advancements and things that have happened across the world, um, I've been able to have two children that are completely free of the virus. I'm guessing at the time, though, it would have felt like a death sentence. Absolutely. I thought it was the end of my line, end of the whakapapa, end of everything it is that, that makes me who I am and, and, and my whanau and... I just, yeah, I went into grieving and I was, wasn't was well for about a year, which is called seroconversion. It's where the body's adjusting to the virus. So I got really sick and started living to die. You know, this was the end. And I spent about six years like that, thinking, you know, nothing else is going to be, I'm going to just check out soon. And then in the end of 99, um... I met a doctor who took me into his office and said, you have to start medication right now. And I said, I didn't even know we had medication. (laughs) Because at that time I had just, you know, I'd kind of been watching to see when New Zealand would get medication in because Australia and America and all the other countries got medication first. And um, I was surprised that that we were able to access it. And I started... In 99, and there was some really severe side effects. And then they changed my medication because they were too severe. And I was on one regime of medication for 10 years. And now they've just changed me since I've had my second baby. And what their medication actually does is suppresses the virus in my body. So lessens the contagiousness or (laughs) contamination or whatever you want to call it. And makes it easier for me to to have children. So that was like giving my life back again. So I had spent from year 2000 onwards, it was like living to live again. 
and I reassessed everything I'd done in my life and, and started um, picking up the pieces and actually getting motivated and activated within the world of Māori and living with HIV. You're 22, you learn you're HIV positive and 22. You want to be out partying, meeting people, having sex. I mean, and you were just saying that until you met your doctor that you'd put things on hold. How did you re-engage with that part of your life again? I think it, not just for me, but it's quite common for a lot of people living with HIV that I've talked to, that you your sexuality changes. You know, it it isn't a main focus anymore. Um, I had a couple of partners I disclosed to to them, and um, that was very difficult when you're telling someone. You you expect rejection, you expect problems. And because and I guess it's not something you want to hear on a first date, eh? No. Or to even say on a first date. And I actually would do it to try and scare them away. Like, say it before it got any further. So you'd use it like a weapon? Yeah. So you wouldn't barrier. have to deal with yeah. any potential rejection? Yeah. And I very much stayed like that. I did meet someone and was with them for a few years, but it was quite abusive. It wasn't good for me. Um, because it was unequal. You know, I always felt less than because I had a virus and he didn't have one. So, you know, I'm the one that could infect him or I'm, you know, the dirty one sort of thing. So I found myself sort of putting up with a lot of things that I shouldn't, didn't need to. So, Marama, can we talk about that? What are some of the, um, you know... So if I was to look at it in an extreme way, some people would say, well, you could never have a relationship because you could potentially infect somebody else. I mean, is that the reality? Well, that's how I felt at the beginning. I thought, that's it, no one's going to want me ever again. But surprisingly, it was the opposite. Because you're fabulous. (laughs) I think what happened is you actually end up with someone that's special yourself. Does that make sense? Like, uh, and I've said it to other positive women as well, is that if they're not strong enough or, you know, open enough and good enough for you, that's what matters. It's not whether you're, you know, damaged or there's something wrong with you. If they have to be up to your level and standard, and that's how I kind of programmed myself, changed the way I thought from being the, the dirty, unequal one to... If you want to be with me, then you have to be pretty special as well. And that was liberating. <laughs> you know, that pretty much puts it right up there, right up front. Yeah. You know, you don't need to go through the whole five years to see what you're made of stuff because you're seeing it right from the outset. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I did spend about six years alone, um, but I was very busy at that time. I was I was studying at Tawanangarokawan and I had so many things to do. That um, that kind of thing was, uh, uh, you know, not a thought. In fact, I quite enjoyed being on my own. And then I was told by my doctors there was no reason I couldn't have children. And I went, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're kidding. After all this time, you're telling me I couldn't. Now you say I can have children. So I went looking for a sperm donor. <laughs> and I and I and I sort of um, enrolled in a fertility clinic and. 
went on the sperm waiting list. <laughs> That's what they call it. Thrown a waiting list and thought, well, I'm going to have a kid on my own. I don't care. I really want to have a child. And um, a couple of weeks later, I went to Fiji with the, um, with the Pacific Island AIDS Foundation. And they were training AIDS ambassadors, they called them, right through the whole Pacific. And because I was Māori and at the time speaking at conferences and talking about HIV publicly, they said, come on over to Fiji. So I did, and I met all these wonderful, positive mm-hmm. people and um, of all different cultures. And um, I saw this man, and I thought, hmm. And I said... I'm looking for a sperm donor. <laughs> I want to have a baby. And this little voice went, I'll help you have a baby. <laughs> and I went, and I was looking, looking, looking. So we went to talk to a doctor. <laughs> and um, we asked the doctor if it was possible and all these sort of mechanical things around it. And he basically said, because both of us were on the same medication, both of us had a suppressed virus, there was no reason we couldn't make a baby the old-fashioned way. So I had a wonderful time in Fiji <laughs> and came home pregnant with my oldest daughter. Oh, and here she is here. Standing at the door. Hello, sweetheart. Are you going to come in, darling? Come in then. Out of my. And my husband, well, he became my husband. I should say I'm jumping the boat now. But he, we started a relationship on the telephone and I told him that I was pregnant. And I said, do you want to come to New Zealand? And he said, absolutely, because he's from Papua New Guinea, which is one of the highest in the Oceania region of HIV prevalence. And he'd already lost his first wife and first two children to AIDS. And to him, it was a whole new start and a new life, and they can hear that, darling. (laughs) And a new beginning, having another wife, and he came to New Zealand um, and we had our daughter, and she's four now. And then last year we had our son, and he's 13 months. And, and your husband is HIV positive as well? Yes, yes. Yeah, we don't know how long he's been living with it for, but he, he actually got very sick. He went down to AIDS level as well, which means you have an acquired immune deficiency. So you go from living with a virus to actually having a compromised immune system. And is this when you start looking like Tom Hanks? In Philadelphia. In yep. Philadelphia. Yeah, right. And we've got photos of, of my husband looking like that. And um, he don't look like that now. <laughs> He's put all the weight back on and he looks wonderful. So, Marama, HIV is a condition you can live. Absolutely. You can live with. It's a manageable chronic illness. And now that we, especially in countries like New Zealand, Australia, Canada, America, England, all the developed countries of the world, we can just, we are very, very fortunate that we've got medication and that it's paid for and we can live a normal, full life. Um, and I'll probably die of diabetes or something. <laughs> you know, one of those genetic <laughs> or things. Or some of those other lovely things that Māori are quite susceptible to. Oh, absolutely. We've got cancer in my family that you wouldn't believe. <laughs> So, you know, those things would probably get me, or a bus, before HIV will now, because it's so manageable. Now, what are some of the... Okay, so that's... So living with... What that leads into is now that we're living longer, 
with HIV. We're also living longer with the stigma and discrimination. And that's a hard thing for a lot of us at the moment we've been talking about and our, our, you know, one of our services is support. And we're finding that um, we're, we're facing stigma and discrimination in the strangest places, but in places some would say, oh, what are you surprised for? But others would say, oh, that's awful that you're at a hospital and you're getting stigma and discrimination at a hospital. And we are. In a place that people would suspect that you, would, you wouldn't be. Yeah. So could you talk through some of what you faced when you were having your babies in hospital? Yeah, there's, there's quite a few incidences. There's sort of, you have universal precautions for any, any blood-borne virus or any kind of you know, contagion. Um, they will probably go a little... When they know you've got it, they will go a little bit more overboard. So two, three pairs of gloves. Um, I have had situations where women have, or nurses, have given me injections or um, subtaneous injections, that means in your puku fat, and then gone and pricked themselves because they've gone to put the cap of the needle back on and they've slipped and got themselves, whereas it's actually training for nurses that are never allowed to recap needles, but I've had that happen, and that's turned into a major drama, even though that's pretty near impossible to get HIV that way. Although that's what they portray in medical dramas like ER or Chicago Hope. They show a nurse becoming HIV infected through a needle. That's right. Um, it has to be a blood, there has to be blood in the needle whereas, um, and go into a bloodstream. Uh, you can get um, HIV from sharing a needle, like with intravenous drug users. That, that last year they had the highest amount of um, intravenous drug use diagnosis ever in New Zealand's history. So we know that, you know, that's happening with people sharing needles. Which brings me to this. Often HIV AIDS is identified as being a gay male disease. Now you're a Māori heterosexual woman. Exactly. Um, I think initially, and especially in countries like New Zealand, Australia, America, Canada, it has the, the numbers of people living with HIV, of living with HIV, have, have always been, majority have been gay men. Um, when the epidemic's taken off in countries like Africa, Sub-Saharan, Africa, Asia all those Central Asia, all the other countries, what's happened is that the face of HIV has changed. So I have an African virus passed on by a heterosexual man. There are many, even Māori women, walking around Aotearoa with an African man's or a one of those other countries, Central Asia, Asia virus. If that makes sense. It's almost like you can always chase the virus back to the country, but it's not quite that technical yet. But the the, the face of HIV is changing in New Zealand, and more and more women, more and more children, and more and more heterosexual men are getting infected. In fact, heterosexual men are probably the least um, talked about, or inf there's the least information about the heterosexual men living with HIV than there is anyone else 
There's more information and research done on women and children. So what are the stats for Māori women? We have, for women getting infected in New Zealand, for every one non-Māori woman, there is uh, 2.8 Māori women. The concern for Māori women as a statistic is it's based on the social health determinants that we have. Um, Dr Clive Aspin, who's a epidemiologist researcher, who's now based in Australia, has, has always um, advocated that Māori women are very much at risk of, of um, having an epidemic. And mainly because there's that complacency where we stand on the social status of things, um, the level of education within our community, um, and just our sort of inability to even negotiate safe sex or initiate safe sex as well. Because it's a, I mean, it's a bit of a fallacy, isn't it, that you can be in a long-term relationship and you don't need to use condoms? Well, I know of um, long-term relationships, marriages with children, where the tāne has gone tiki-touring around other places and bought it home. And that's not just... That's, that's not one isolated case. That's quite common. Um, and it's actually, culturally, it's all around the world. So you're not safe, even like, for instance, in the Pacific Islands, it happens quite a lot, where you've, you're one woman man uh, or one man woman and then something goes wrong and they go off somewhere and come back, either or, male or female, and next thing you know, they're, they've been infected. So that's a big one. More than you think. Um, I think, and especially in those countries where um, religion is such an important factor, it's seen that if you are HIV positive, then you must have been naughty, you must have been bad, you're cursed, there's something wrong with you. And um, half the time it's completely innocent and their husband's brought it home. So we're always sort of aware that... You can't really judge someone from where they got it. I've been in situations myself, sitting in the wind's office, where I can tell by looking at their eyes that they're trying to work out where did I get it? Am I a prostitute? Am I a drug user? Am I gay? You know, the, the whole list of what you must be if you have HIV goes through their mind, and or you must be a bad person, or you must you should well look what happens to you because you slept around, and yet I did something that is considered. A rite of passage for a young person. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I'll never forget at the time that it happened and I was getting interviewed by the police, they sent a female a police officer to do my statement. And after I'd done it, she sat and looked at me and she said, the amount of casual sex I've had in my life and you, your first experience, she, just, she felt incredibly guilty that it had happened to me so quickly. And, and, I mean, it's a, it's, there's a sexual revolution that started way back in the 60s and it's still going strong today. You know, we can tell by all the STIs and the higher rates of chlamydia that we have that it's still going strong today. Martima, would you say that your life has been defined by it's, that one night? Absolutely. It changed everything. Um, I had... I had a career working for the Justice Department. Um, I was had all these prospects of what I wanted to do in my life 
and um, I would have probably ended up having children younger. Now that I've had to have them older, it's a bit difficult. But I would have things would have been completely different if I hadn't got it. So it has I can't say, oh no, no, no. The truth is, it changed my life forever. And I wouldn't be speaking publicly and doing these things either. I'd probably be Joe Blow down the road, just like everyone else, you know, talking about the neighbours' cats or something, you know. <laughs> no different to anyone else. But And how is it for you being the public face? Sometimes I've had, like when I was younger, because I've actually done quite a few articles and documentaries and, you know, things over the years. I used to think, when I was young and naive, everyone knows. So I used to get shocked when I met people that didn't know, because it's very, you know, last-minute news. Um, If you could be in the paper one week and next week they completely forget you. And so I didn't know that side of media. Um, over the years, I've learnt with media that, you know, it's very fickle and fancy and you just never know. So I think I did more internalised stigma about what people were thinking because I was doing the media stuff. So is that thinking they're judging you? Yes. Think, oh, they know I've got HIV. I still do it now. They I won't want to my... touch me. Yeah. They won't want to kiss me. They won't want to hungry me. I have had people pick have their children up and move that? away from me and not kiss me, not hungry me. So you have encountered that kind of prejudice on oh, the Marae yeah. or in Marae's situations? Absolutely. And I've had um, where they don't want me to work in the kitchen or touch touch the dishes or um, even Is clean the Is there anything toilet. to worry about in that, in that Absolutely field? Absolutely not. The HIV virus is so vulnerable to everything. It can only survive in blood in body fluids like semen. When when it's exposed to air, water, bleach, chemicals, soap, it's dead. It dies instantly. So there's no it's not like hepatitis where you um you can get it from people, you know, passing plates around and things like that, or or sores or drinks or smokes or other kind of smokes and all those other hepatitis type situations. You can't get it like that. It's actually quite hard. And I've had young people that I've that have known me all their lives who have been in situations where they're getting taught at school that you can get HIV from a cup, and they've challenged their teacher and got in trouble, and rung me up and said, "Auntie, I had someone <laughs> tell me today you can get it from a cup," and I said, "That's not true because I've got an auntie and she's got HIV, and I have I share cups with her all the time." <laughs> and you know, there's a lot of misconceptions and myths around what HIV really is, like. First of all, the biggest one is that it's a gay man's disease. It's not. It's anybody's disease. It doesn't discriminate on who it's going to infect. We have children here living with HIV. Māori have the highest burden of children, meaning for every one non-Māori child, there's 4.5 Māori children living with HIV here. They're, they're only little. They're born with it. How can they be you know, at fault? They didn't, use a, they didn't share a needle. They didn't have sex. They didn't do anything to get it, they were just born. And these poor children are living with this stigma and discrimination. We're lucky that we had Eve back in the day, remember? Yeah. Eve? Yeah. Yeah. Because she paved the way for to stop the discrimination of that. They can't exclude children from schools and kōhanga or, or things like that. I still have concerns that what if the parents of other kids see my children at a, at a kindy and have a problem? You see, so there's that 
sort of outer discrimination that can still happen. And of course, the internal discrimination I carry is, oh, they're not talking to me. Oh, they probably don't like me anymore because I've got HIV. Mm. So it's it's very two sided, and you have to find a balance. Because half the time, when you ask them, they're not thinking that way at all. And you've lived eighteen years with this yeah. condition. What are your feelings towards Peter Moy? I I I don't really feel much towards him anymore. I mean. In the early days, there was a lot of anger. Um, I didn't know him enough to to love him or care about him. Um, I was very aware that it was a transaction, <laughs> a swapping of transactions. But um, I think I could safely say, after all these years, that I could say that I turned a negative into a positive. Um, what he changed in my life forever has made me the person I am today. And I'm quite happy with that person. Kia ora, marama pala. He wahine a tāhua, ara he wahine pūrotu. What an inspiration near Fanoma. For more information about her story, check out our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. That's T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A. And you can also listen to a longer version of that kōrero. That's at our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. Now this waiata seems to have nine lives near Mariah. It was written by Ngui Pifairangi and Dalvanius Prime, performed by the Pātia Māori Club in 1982, then recorded and mixed in 1983. And it stayed at the number one spot in the music charts for four weeks in 1985. Who could forget the video, eh? Filmed in the main street of Pātia by the waka with Joe the White Glove Brick Dancer. Well, on March the 19th of this year, the song Poor Year entered the charts again some 30 years on from its first release. So, why the resurgence, Mariah? Well, it's all thanks to the movie Boy, which featured the waiata and gave it a bit of a revamp during the end credits with the cast doing the Michael um, Jackson thriller dance of the song as well. The Mariah met members of the Pātia Māori Club who were pretty surprised when they learned their this song was hitting the charts again. To the party, Club now we're sitting in the middle of the premises of the Pātia Māori Club and you guys have had practices here every Monday from 6 to 8 for the past... 40-odd years. <laughs> About that. Years. Well, 26 years in here. But we used to have um, practices in the old Methodist church up just uptown, out in the middle of town. Now, how, does, how did the club get started? Well, it was a conception that was done at Pariro Pa. That's where we actually started, was at Pariro Pa, at, um, from a chappy called. Now, actually, he was the, the Methodist minister from Napi... His name was Napi Waka, like everybody knows Napi Waka from Hamilton, I think. And he was the one that actually started it at Pariro Pa. And it was the uh, Party on Māori Methodist Māori Club then. Oh, that's a mouthful. Yeah, yeah and that's why. <laughs> and everybody in the club wasn't Methodist. They were all denominations, so it got changed when Dale came along. And it was and by Dale you're meaning Delvanius Prime? Yeah, and he, he called it just the Party on Māori Club. And now it's called the Party on Māori Cultural Theatre Trust. Whew. Another mouthful. <laughs> Another mouthful, yes. <laughs> 
Now, is that because the Pātia Māori Club encompasses a whole lot of different aspects of their, of mahi? Yes, all sorts. Yeah. Um, you're talking about um, education and all that sort of, yes. All of those things come in tikanga and all, all things Māori and all that sort of thing. Now, as yeah. the club's been going for that period of time, that means you've got, you've had generations of, of generations performers. Of performers, yes. Now, my understanding yes. is that you and Vera and Waimari, you guys are the original members of the Pātia yes. Māori Club. Yes. Yes. And you're still in there. Still performing, yes, and still there. So, what was it like in the early days? Oh, much different to what it is now, very much. Um, you know, because we never had TV or anything like that when we first started, or or mics, or your, or what do you call those things? PlayStation. Those uh, phone, cell phones, and oh, yeah. iPods, and everything, and computers. You know, you all had to learn from up here on, you know, in your brain. Your brain worked over time then. Now, back then, Pātia was a thriving community, wasn't it? You had the yes, Pātia yes. Freezing Works. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, the well-known documented history is that the Freezing Works closed okay, yes. and just the effects that had on the community. Yeah. Can you just go back but, to those but times? It, 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 um, for a start, of it wasn't much of an effect because um, they started the gardens and all those sort of things came in. So a lot of, although a lot of people did leave, you know, the left part here. Oh, they had um, PP schemes, um, and I was involved in that too. I also worked at the Freezing Works, um, and, and at that time it was, really, it was really good. But when it closed down, um, myself and husband went on to the PP schemes, um, and they had them based out at the Marais, <clears throat> and one of them, of course, was Paridor. So we were out there um, planting vegetables and selling them at the local market in Hawara. Um, and I think that carried on for about two years, two, three years. And then it saw my husband um, from the PP scheme going on to um, the Rotorangi Dam. And so he, he was able to get job up there with... Um, um, for about another two years and then um, we became tutors up at um, uh, Mamurai in Hawara at Kotu and um, my husband became a carver tutor and, and through Napiwaka um, he was able to um, yeah, teach a lot of our young people up there the skills of, um, of carving. Um, since then, right up to now, 2010, um, for me, it's, and since boy, when the former form boy has um, come up, it's, it's been really exciting again. You know? um, so does party go through highs and lows like every little community? Absolutely. So what I, what I remember is when I first saw Poirier on TV in 1985 mm -hmm. and that song just went viral, really. Yeah. Well, uh, Poirier, the song itself, was first performed at the 1983 
festival, you know, when they had, used to have the Polynesian festivals and all that. Which had today's equivalent which, of Matatini. To the Matatini one, yes, that's today. But in 1983, we did it in Hastings at that festival and came th- first equal with Manutaki. Hmm. That was that was in 1983, and that was the first time that song was sung with Akuraukura and Heiko Neira, and that was and, and that was they had no backing tapes, no, backing no nothing tapes, at all, guitar. just backing just. tapes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. yes, yeah. So in 1983, that was that. 1984 was the um, time they started. Brought, um, recording it in Auckland. Commercial. Yeah, it went commercial then, 1984. It was released in 1985. At the mascot studios, studios in, Auckland, in Auckland, that's where yeah. we went to. And then when did that video come out that saw that fellow bopping in the white gloves over by the canoe? And oh. Same time, same time, I think, about 85. Yeah. yeah. When, when, it, when it was released, I think it came out then. Hmm. Because when that happened, it just went, it just went huge, didn't it? I think he wanted to prove a point anyway, uh, Dal did, because he he looked beyond the square. You know, he didn't sort of keep it so together. He was quite he global was, in his Oh, thinking. he was very global. Yeah, but um, uh, he he did that himself, or arranged that himself, did everything himself. You guys and, just turned up on and the we day just and performed. Up. Well, he'd click his fingers and we'd all jump and, you know. <laughs> and we, we, were, we were really lucky, actually, um, us three here. We were able to travel, travel to um, um, London um, to, on one of the tours, one of the many tours that he had. And so we went to London and Scotland to perform at the Royal Gala Performance in front of uh, Her Majesty and... Um, Oh, and other great celebrities. Um, Linda Evans. Yeah, Linda Evans. Uh, Ralph Harris. Um, oh, there's heaps of them. Yeah. And, I mean, we had no money. We had no... Um, the club had no, no money, money at that time. And, and Dell went and put his house up <laughs> and got us over there. That's how we got across to, to Edinburgh. How accepted was the song here in Aotearoa? Or did you find more acceptance of it when you went overseas? Well, when he first started doing... Um, uh, well, at the beginning, when he had Poor Year done, he didn't even think it, it would go as well as it did. Because I think he really wanted to prove a point that, you know, that Māori songs can be just as good as English songs on, on the radio. And he had a lot of trouble with the, um, being on radio and TV... He he had such a lot of problems because they didn't believe that Maori music could go that far, and he just I think he just wanted to prove a point. That's probably that, a sign of the times at the time too. Eh? Yes, it was, yes, and in yeah, the 1980s, 1980s, just after mm. the Springbok tour, you know, things yeah. between Maori and Pākehā to crash hot. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yes. So you went overseas. Yeah. Um, that was just one trip, and then um, the other trip was um, f- for the other members was to Washington, to the States, or England, and then to to the States. Um, and if, and there were trips to Hawaii. Um, yeah, it was, it was great. Did you find that the song was recognised when you went overseas? Yes, the poor year was. Yes, yes. Because it wasn't just that song that your bracket was made up of, was it? 
No, I mean, you no, there, there was a full performing kabaka yeah, there, there was other songs as well, but that one was, yeah, that was that was mainly the song that we were taking over there anyway. So, and now we're some what, thirty, nearly thirty years later, and there you have Poirier re-entering the charts. Yes, and that's, that, that's exciting to us because, uh, well, when when it was first. When it first came out, and, and we were told it was the top of the charts, you know, being on the top for six or four or six weeks or whatever it was, um, back then it was really exciting. But you know, now it's it's even better, you know, because you you you. It's like been a sitting, whole new generation. Generation, has yeah, into it, yeah, eh? yeah, it is, mm. it is, yeah. and it's all through all those. Records and gold records and platinum and everything that we've got up on the wall, and that's through Gosh, four so years. On the wall up there, I can see all these discs. Mm. Of There's a picture of Delvanius Prime, he's in the centre. And then who are those two men flanking him in those photographs? Um, on your right, you've got Delvanius' old brother, Sam Prime, and he was our, oh, he was our mentor, he was our everything, Sam was. And um, and on the other side, the Komatu is John Hiramai, and he was he was like Sam's mentor and Dal's too. Yeah. And then you have various discs. I can see. Can we just have a look and have a look at them? So what, what's? Oh, it's an actual framed yeah, copy of Poirier, Patricia. Yes, that's Poirier. That that one there. And I think that one there is Poirier too, and that one is Akurokuro over there in the next to Sam Prime. How does Akurokuro go? What's that tune? Those are gold, and those two over there are platinum. And are they for the same thing? Those are for the same two records. Now, how many records do you have to sell to get platinum? Um, about 500,000. And I think to get gold, it has to be around about a million. Oh, be 75 at least. Okay. Now, uh, so what we're doing now is we're standing in front of the bar area of the club and I can see, gosh, there's trophies and I look at all the photographs. Can we just take a walk over here and have a look at the photographs? There's a banner that we're passing underneath that looks like it's written in Korean. Uh, Japanese. Welcome to an evening with the Pātea Māori Club New yeah. Zealand Food that, and Wine. That was to the Expo, Expo in Japan. And uh, the, some other group, some of the group went over. Okay. Now heading towards the photo gallery. Oh, yeah, there we go. The Pātea Māori Methodist Club. <laughs> Ask her because I can't see that. Yeah. How do you this Maori club? So you had. Um, what year was that? Oh. <laughs> 1970, 1972. Okay, 1972 to 1973, the Pasia Maori Methodist Club. Yeah. And so you involved, well, we involved Napiwaka in that one. Um, and uh, we went down south on the trip. You, you, were you there, no, Bib? No. Yeah, first time down South Island, and we did a tour down there. Gosh, like 1968, 1969. Is this one of the oldest 
Mardi Club's around? I would say I would say we would be around this area, Taranaki area. Well, 1972 was the f when they went down to South Island. That was was the first year we entered into the Polynesian Festival oh, competitions. Yeah. Mm. Gosh, I'm going to see if I know any of these people. Where are you fellas in the photos? We are in those photos. This is Bib's team that she had over in Waipukuro. Yeah, oh, that's when the works closed and we went over to Hastings to live and we took a group, made up a group of or Waipukuro over in. There were people from Pātea who had gone to Waipukuro? Yes. So oh. that's in front of which Whanunui, Taipuro, Henunui. And this is out at Pariro Pa. Oh, yeah. And so South Taranaki Māori Club, National Polynesian Festival Group, and it was in 1983 in Hastings. And you can see where we came. Well, first in the ancient chant, First equal poi, second coral, fifth aggregate. And so this week, poi was, was born. The uniform changed? No. Those are still the same, the same colours and design? It's still the same colours and design. We, that uniform belonged to South Taranaki Māori Club, right? And then when Dale came into the picture, he decided that was going to be the PMC colours too. Can you join the club? Can anyone join? Anyone can join the club. We have um, juniors, seniors, associated members, um, and anybody that wants to join. Because you know what, this probably would have to be one of the more well-known clubs around Aotearoa. Hmm. And would it be fair enough to say that it was really put on the map when it came to, Poie. through its association with the Waiata Poie? Yes, yes, yes. Despite and, and, and anyone can join. Anyone can pay a subscription and be a member. So the song was written by Noi Pufairangi, Ngāti Purau, mm -hmm. but it's identifiably recognised as being Pātea Māori Club. She, she wrote it for... Now, when the Pātea Māori... Because when the work's finished, that's where they went, over to Ngāti Purau, and that's when her and Dal sat down and did the song. She wrote it and he put the music to it. And she wrote it especially for Pātea. So that's where it's probably why it's identified for Pātea. Mm. Do you ever get sick of it? Mm, no, not really. The, the, the tune, it's it just when you hear the tune, it makes you... your ear, yeah, eh? yeah, it makes your toe tap. Sometimes we get sick of it. <laughs> we we uh, when we get on stage we smile and put on an act you know like all actresses and actors do <laughs> and then as soon as the music stops it's back to the old oh yeah right still boy now when it appears in the film Boy the film directed and written by Taika Waititi it's towards the end isn't it when he ends up doing a dance to it mm. and actually you know you think the film's finished and then the screen goes blank and then boof yeah, it comes up yeah. and it always gets a chair in the theatre yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes so well, do you have all these kids around here dancing that Michael Jackson danced to for you? some do <laughs> Moko's the one he does, he does the Michael Jackson stuff but we didn't know that was even on until we saw that the film didn't even know that was that they'd they did a revamp of the 
video clip until we saw the film. What was your response? Well, our first response was, well, it wasn't very nice. It wasn't very good. You know, everybody had their different opinions of it. But, um, well, you listen to it and it sort of gets into your ear. And, was it the yeah. way it was used? It wasn't nice? I think or? so. I think it was just the way... Some of the, you know, because you see him bobbing up and down and, and you know, it didn't look very nice with yeah. that on. But, you know, some people think it's fine. But, you know, some, some didn't like it, some did. Yeah. So what did you what did you guys do about that? I mean, well, we can't do a thing about it. We couldn't do a thing about it. So we're just now waiting for um, to see what they're going to do with it. They did ask if we want to do a revamp, wanted to do a revamp of four year, but we like another video yet. of it. But we haven't decided. Nobody's sort of talked about it yet. So could be in the pipeline. Although we're we're doing. Um, other songs oh. for for an album, but and we're getting um, Dalvanius's sister back to sing with us, Valletta Prime. So until that's done, then we'll. How many albums does Party of Māori Club have? There's only the Poor Year CD, and um, E Papa and Akurakura and Heikoneira, but they're not on. Um, they're not singles, they're on, on CDs, yeah. There's quite a few songs on the CDs, but those, those are the main songs that we use. So when you have practice here on Mondays, are you running through your routines? Yes. Was it a catch-up? Yes. yes. Oh, we catch, we um, do our CDs so they can teach the new ones that are, or the newer ones that are coming into the group, you know, being wanting to come to join. So we do revamps on all those, and, but it's usually um, programs that we do for what's coming up. Or So with Poirier having such a resurgence with its appearance in the film Boy, have you found that your public appearances have increased or demand yes, for your services? the demand services? is still there, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. I mean, that must be a good thing? Yeah, because it was only just last month. We've just, we've just come back from doing the film awards, uh, for poor year, and then we did the. That um, was up in Auckland. Mm, then we came back to Hawa and did the um, um, South Taranaki District Council conference, New Zealand conference in, in Hawa, and um, and then we've got the Christmas in the Park coming up, and the Festival of the Lights in New Plymouth coming up, and um, what else is there? And WOMAD. That's great. So, so it keeps there, the profile is, of yes, the club. Yes, it does keep. So it keeps the club alive. Yes, yeah. Keeps new generations coming through. Mm. Uh, we've got our juniors that that uh, Janine and Andy Murrayweta take on a Monday afternoon. They 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 have a junior group, and then they take the seniors at six o'clock on the same day, Monday night. Now you put a team up in the Polynesian Festival, which has now been revamped as. Matatini in nineteen eighty three. Three. Has Party Māori Club always put up a team? Well we haven't been in the last three years. Three lots of um, Matatini. But you always programs. put a team up for we always regionals. Put a, we always put a team in for regionals, mm. yeah. Yeah. But yes. But but not yes. under not under Party Māori Club, it's under Aote Utanganui. 
Yeah. Pāti Māori Club is the commercial arm of the club, and Aotea Utanga Nui is the um, competitive um, rōpū. So how many members are here? Uh, well, the last count we had for this year, because our financial year finished in, in June this year, and from July this year, we have 181 so far. So how do you sustain that financially? Raffles? Um, performances, shows. Um, uh, uh, this time last year we were doing raffles and um, having garage sales just to pay the, you know, the bills that everybody else has to pay as well, like power and um, telephone. Um, but now we're kind of in a better position now um, with all the shows that we've had. Yeah. But I guess that position could be much stronger if copyright around the song was retained within the club rather than within an individual at the moment? Well, we're working through those issues and, the, and at every trustee meeting, um, you know, this is always raised, so it's, we are going to deal with it. He mihi tēnei ki te rōpū kapahaka o Pātia, the Pātia Māori Club. Kia ora, Vera Kershaw, who you just heard there, with Patricia Ngariwa and Waimarie Cassidy. Don't forget Fano Māwe on Facebook. You can find a link on our webpage, that's radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. Click like us and you'll see our weekly updates about what's coming up. You can leave us a comment, whether it's feedback about our shows or a friendly kia ora. Tēnā me whakapātū ki Next week, we're with ukulele extraordinaire Phil Campbell as Mariah and I bash out. I mean, <laughs> learn to play a couple of tunes. And I'm with Rotorua-based Kerry Cunningham, a chef cook whose idea of fusion is to combine kai Māori with chocolate. Let us know too what you're doing this Christmas. What are your favourite hotspots? Flick us in the email to teahika at radionz.co.nz We may even give you a special mention on our last show of the year coming up on the 19th of December. Aneira awi paratangatoko with this week's Fakatoki. Tangata takahi manuhiri he marae puehu A person who mistreats his guests as a dusty marae, or meeting house. Ko te tikanga ki ahau, kia kaha ke tātou te tia ki tangata, ahako kōwai, ahako nōhea. Ki te kore, a he marae puehu. He pūkenga rangatira tēnei te tia ki tangata, he pūkenga tēnei mai rāno. To me, this whakatauki is all about looking after people, no matter who they are or where they're from. If you don't, then your meeting house becomes dusty. This is an old attribute from the past and is one that we still use today to ensure that our guests are looked after properly on the marae. Ko iparatanga toko tēnei e tukunga mihi ki ao koutou. Ko mauau taku maunga, ko tauranga taku moana, ko huria tōku marae, ko motu o pai te wahi tapu, ko kopu rere roa te awa.